You're listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, a look behind the scenes about the inspiration for Facets, a new limited podcast series from KHOL and Steo. We have space in this longer form medium to tell a more complex story. Plus, victims of radiation exposure from uranium mines and nuclear weapons testing fight for expanded support from Congress. Nothing makes you an activist faster than a diagnosis, I always say. But first, we turn to an extra quiet corner of Teton County this April. The Jackson Hole Airport entered a 78-day closure earlier this month in order to rebuild its runway. And as K-12's Will Walkie reports, local businesses are preparing for not much to change despite this major but temporary shift in regional travel. Salmon, uh, akame, thai, snapper. Kampai in downtown Jackson brings a slice of Japan to northwest Wyoming. On the menu is Wagyu beef, New Zealand king salmon, and caviar. Dan Janjigian is general manager at the restaurant, and he says if you're eating fish there, it's going to be fresh, despite the fact that the Pacific Ocean is nearly 800 miles away. If we place an order that's coming from Toyosu Market in Japan, it'll be about two and a half days between when we call and we talk to our buyer on the ground in Tokyo until it lands at our doorstep. That quality comes at a hefty price. The average sushi roll is around 25 bucks. But, Janjigian says, about half his customers since he opened last year have been locals. For me, that was really what I wanted to bring in is people to have an outlet for them to have a really nice meal and high quality service and exceptional food and somewhere to go out and have um, a date night or a special occasion night um, that was outside of the norm. Like many restaurants around the region, Kampai is currently closed for a few weeks during the shoulder season. But when it reopens, the menu is going to look basically the same, despite the fact that FedEx flights can't land in Jackson during the airport shutdown. Many of his products are delivered on trucks from Denver or Salt Lake City, and those supply lines will remain. Any day you're sitting and looking out the window, you might see eight or 10 FedEx trucks in a 10 minute span of time. They're not just gonna stop. I would imagine that they're still coming from Idaho Falls or Driggs, or they'll, they'll work it out to get here. And it's not just truckers who will keep coming. The number of visiting tourists isn't expected to fall much either. Anna Olson is president of the Jackson Hole Chamber of Commerce. From our forecast booking occupancy, we're really seeing very little, if any, impact through Memorial Day. As the summer picks up, it's a slightly different story. Olson says a lot of folks are planning get-togethers and events for July and August, once the airport is back open. June is where we're going to see, and at the moment it's forecast anywhere from 10 to 15 percent down in terms of rooms booked compared to last year. And that is obviously impacted by the airport because you can see it immediately goes up on the 25th of June and demand for the rest of the summer is ahead of last year. 10 to 15 percent may sound like a lot, but it's actually not when you consider how much of Wyoming's tourism is based on visitors arriving in cars. Olson says she's seeing increased demand for rental cars and shuttles from Idaho Falls, Rock Springs, and even Bozeman. Certainly in 2020, you know, air travel was down 35%, and yet we saw an increase in drive 
um, and increase in sales tax collections and an increase in, in lodging tax collections. At the end of the day, the people most impacted by the closure are locals planning vacations and business trips. At the airport, some workers are taking time off, but those that still want hours have work to do, according to communications manager Meg Jenkins. Jenkins says right now she's working on long-term improvements, like remodeling the TSA lanes and terminal lobby spaces. Um, it's really bringing a lot of memories back to the beginning of COVID when we were down in employments and had 15, 20 people traveling through the airport um, daily. Jenkins says she gets a lot of questions about what exactly is going on in terms of construction. And she wants to make it clear that the airport is not widening the runway or adding a second one to take in bigger planes. Both rumors she's heard around town. Reflecting on the bigger picture, she also says another project like this is unlikely to happen in her lifetime. We've never lived through this type of project, so it'll be really interesting uh, looking back on the 78-day closure and seeing all of the differences and uh, the exciting takeaways that we'll learn through this process. Most significantly, the engineering firm on the project has never been late on a runway opening in 70 years. It also has a million-dollar incentive to get the work done on time, according to Jenkins. So those flights scheduled for June 28th are almost certain to be in service. We're just really taking advantage of this closure to, to knock a bunch of things out. Really excited to welcome the community back at the end of June when everything is all put together and ready to welcome back the public. Meanwhile, the Chamber of Commerce says it's studying how tourists that drive differ from air travelers. And Grand Teton National Park plans to use this quiet time to look into noise impacts from the airport. For Janjigian, a slight decrease in traffic to Kampai could even be a good thing, allowing even more locals to visit. But he's not counting on that happening. After having been in town for 18 years, I just see growing and growing. And with a lean winter, I could see the parks opening up a little earlier and the tourism getting here faster without the airport's help, whether it's cloudy or smoky or whatever it might be. They're still coming to Jackson. Indeed, the latest figures show that hotel bookings were up over the winter in Jackson Hole, despite a weak snow year at local ski resorts. National parks in the area saw record visitation in 2021. Will Walkie, KHOL News. KHOL and STEO launched a new limited podcast series on April 1st called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. The five-episode series explores the complex relationship between humans and the natural world of Jackson Hole. And it's been a project many months in the making for the station. KHOL Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin recently sat down with our Executive Director Emily Cohen and Liz Barrett of STEO to hear more about how the partnership came together. This conversation was recorded live in the KHOL studios in early April. Bassets is a new limited podcast series created by KHOL and the outdoor clothing company Steo that features stories told by original voices of the mountain life. The first episode, Bears, Berries, and Brews, debuted on Friday, April 1st. Joining me right now in the KHOL studios is Steo's brand director, Liz Barrett, and KHOL's executive director, Emily Cohen, who reported and produced the first episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, guys. 
Great to be here. So happy to be here. Yeah, welcome in. So Emily, over to you. How did this partnership with Steo come about? Well, Liz and I actually met this past summer. Liz is a former DJ here at the station. That's oh, right. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. Oh, cool. <laughs> and we had been talking about ways that we could partner with Steo. It's this iconic company based here in Jackson, and their mission is very much intertwined with storytelling. You look at a Steo catalog and you see local faces. You read stories about these characters. And a lot of what we do here at KHOL is storytelling. So Liz, Facets is a new venture for Steo into the audio world. What made you want to partner with us here at KHOL? Well, Emily mentioned it. I am a former DJ, so KHOL has a special place in my heart. But, you know, with Emily coming in and, and some of the new initiatives that the station is doing, the importance of creating a community hub for um, sharing of information and news and, and something for people to rally around. And so Jackson at its core, you know, we want to be good stewards of the mountain life. You know, that expresses itself in a variety of ways, whether that's, you know, through supporting conservation efforts or by being very intentional around the stories that we tell and wanting to celebrate and honor the unique stories that that make this life that we live one that we all love and care so much about. And so KHOL is the obvious choice for that. I mean, they're doing that here and for us to be able to work with, you know, not only people that care about it and get it, but that also have um, such talent and technical skills to bring it to life. So Emily, Facets is all about stories told by original voices of the mountain life shedding light on the many aspects of humans living close to nature. Why is it so important to share these stories? Well, Jackson is such a dynamic place, but often it's hard to get into all that nuance. And here is a space that we can do that. It's multifaceted, hence the name of the podcast, Facets. We have space in this longer form medium to tell a more complex story. So the first episode actually opens with the scene in your backyard, Liz, with Orion Bellarado, one of the founders of Farmstead Cider, harvesting fruit from your apricot tree. Can you tell us more about this tree and how the connection with Farmstead came about? I've lived in this house in East Jackson now. I think it was like my fourth summer there. And I've had my eye on this tree in the backyard the, um, that would fruit, but it would never come to full fruit. So over like the past four summers, um, you know, it would start to fruit these apricots and then the frost would come and it would zap them. And so you'd get these little hard green rocks, you know, that ultimately fall. And this summer, this past summer, if we all remember, was very warm. You know, come August, I looked out my window one day and just realized, whoa, here's this apricot tree that is just having its best summer ever and its best season you know, doing what it was designed to do, which is to bear this fruit. And so I got very excited about the apricot tree, but I didn't know what to do with all the apricots. And so I gave a bunch to the neighbors. I made some jam and there's still, still just so much on the tree that um, I was looking through Instagram one day and I saw Farmstead Cider, who I follow, was going around town and harvesting fruit. And so I didn't really understand the full essence of what their mission was and what they were all about sent them a message and said, you know, you'll never, you'll never believe this, but I have an apricot tree in my backyard. Y'all should come make some cider out of it. 
And, you know, they were quite skeptical that this actually existed, (laughs) but they came to check it out. And that's where um, episode one begins. So wrapping up here, guys, Emily, what is in store for future episodes of Facets? Well, we have a new episode coming out on Friday, April 15th that's produced by KTOL reporter Will Walkie. It's about the controversy between bighorn sheep and skiers and how to preserve this icon of the Tetons. And then after that, we have an episode produced by Kyle Mackey on healing in the outdoors and the juvenile justice system. Our final two episodes are then on pioneering women in our community, as well as people who've immigrated to Jackson and how they've made Jackson home. So you can listen to Facets on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next story comes to KHOL through the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, passed in 1990, provides benefits to uranium mine workers and other Americans who suffered negative health impacts as a result of the nuclear weapons industry. The act is set to expire on July 10th, but there are still many people who qualify for help and haven't received it yet. So a new bill expanding RECA coverage is currently before Congress. Justin Higginbottom of KZMU in Moab spoke to some victims of radiation exposure about how their experiences turned into advocacy. Those sounds are trucks hauling material from the Moab Uranium Mill Tailings Remedial Action Project. The U.S. Department of Energy is cleaning up around 16 million tons of uranium tailings here on the banks of the Colorado River, waste from the Atlas Uranium Ore Processing Facility. Uranium created a lot of wealth in the region and helped the country build its nuclear arsenal during the Cold War, but it came at a price, like those tailings which are radioactive. And it's not only the landscape that was left scarred. My father was a former underground uranium miner, died at the age of 44 years old from lung cancer. And I also worked in the mine while I was in high school down in Colorado. That's Phil Harrison Jr. He heads the Navajo Uranium Radiation Victims Committee. It's been around since the late 70s. Many uranium mines and mills were on the Navajo Nation or used Navajo workers, like Harrison's father. Harrison says that out of five siblings... I think it's only myself, uh, my brother, and my sister that knew my dad. The last three, they didn't know their father. And uh, so typical of all the former Navajo uranium workers... He says he's recorded over 400 other former workers in his community in Northeast Arizona who have died of lung disease. So we have uh, over 400 widows and we have children that didn't know their father, they didn't know their grandfather. So it's, it's very uh, 
discouraging. You know, when you go out to my community, there's hardly anyone around these days. Harrison has been involved in pushing legislation to help those impacted by the nuclear industry for decades. He says he helped draft the amended Radiation Exposure Compensation Act over 20 years ago. That amendment included expanded help for downwinders, those that were exposed to fallout from nuclear testing. Mary Dixon thinks that's her. It started because I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, which is one of the cancers that's pretty common from radiation exposure. I was only 29 when I got that. Doctors removed her thyroid, and then the treatment was more radiation. You drank radioactive iodine to destroy any remaining thyroid tissue. So I had on my hospital bracelet a little emblem that said, caution, radioactive material. A doctor would come to her door and hold up a Geiger counter every day until she was not too hot. When she left the hospital, she was told to avoid pregnant women or share a bed with her husband for a time. Nothing makes you an activist faster than a diagnosis, I always say. Thyroid cancer is especially common for downwinders, and Dixon says the fallout from detonation spread much further than originally thought. If you were driving from Los Angeles to Salt Lake City on US Highway 91, you'd pass through St. George, Utah, population 4,562, just a short way from the state line of Nevada. That's footage from the United States Atomic Energy Commission. The government detonated nearly 1,000 atomic bombs at the Nevada test site. A 1997 study by the National Cancer Institute says that nearly every state experienced some fallout from that testing. It estimates that detonations caused tens of thousands of cases of thyroid cancer around the country. Since the rest of the town was sound asleep, only our night owl saw it, that great flash in the western sky. An atomic bomb at the Nevada test site 140 miles to the west. Dixon has also been working on expanding RECA for around 30 years. She was never eligible for benefits because her northern Utah county wasn't covered. That Cold War had casualties and still has casualties. Another issue she wants fixed, RECA only covers those working in mines and mills before 1972. Harrison on the Navajo Nation is trying to file as many claims as possible in the next two months before the act expires. He says it takes time to get the tests and documents required. Recently, he was helping one former miner who had lung disease. He says in rural and remote parts of the reservation, it's hard to get something as basic as a diagnosis letter. After four months, I finally got that diagnosis letter. So I was able to help him put a claim together. He received a notice a week after he died that, you know, his claim was approved. He says the pandemic hit those on the Navajo Nation with respiratory illnesses especially hard. He lost many former workers that could have received benefits. I feel that the uh, government has done a lot of damage and it took away a lot of our fathers. And my fathers had never seen what the Western world uh, has when they say the... Um, American dream, and they never knew what American dream was. They never reached their adult life. Harrison says he's heading to Washington within the month to plead his people's case to lawmakers. Until then, he can only start the claims process for others, even those he knows he can't finish in time. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio.
The Fire in the Mountains Heavy Metal Festival is hoping to return to Jackson Hole this summer, but organizers are still awaiting a key decision from the Teton County Commissioners to move forward. Next, K-12 Music Director Jack Catlin interviews festival founder Jeremy Walker about the value of bringing diverse music and arts to the region. We should also note that K-12 submitted a letter of support for the festival's permit. This conversation was recorded live earlier this month. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back in the studio. So what sparked the idea to produce such a large-scale event like Fire in the Mountains, and how has it evolved in your mind over the years? The idea, you know, really sparked from, honestly, just listening to one of the bands that I started Fire in the Mountains with, with which is a band called Wayfarer, and they're from Denver. Um, and I was listening to them, and they, they sing about mountains. Every song is about the Wild West and the mountains, the mountain landscape. And I thought to myself, well... We should see if they uh, put their money where their mouth is. I'm going to invite them to come up to Jackson and play a show up on Shadow Mountain, which was a clandestine, slightly under-the-radar event. And we called it Fire in the Mountains, and that really was the first one, which was before 2018, but that really wasn't a festival. It was more like a party in the woods. And when they played that first show, it was just them. They played a few songs, and we had a big camp out afterwards. And we built a stage, tore down the stage right afterwards, so no one really saw that it existed. Seeing a band like that playing framed by the Tetons was borderline spiritual experience. And it just hit me that first year. I was like, I need to do this. This is something that I think you were born to do. Because seeing a band like that just works well in front of the Tetons, in front of this like epic, big, heavy landscape that we live in. Since then, it's really just been my passion to to grow it year after year so that more and more people can experience that and more and more bands can experience playing it. Well, that's a good segue to my next point, which is the crux of our conversation here. The Teton County Commissioners will have a public hearing and vote on whether or not to pass the conditional use permit for fire in the mountains. Can you explain to the listeners the importance of this hearing and what it means for not only the future of FITM, but for the arts scene here in Jackson in general? Yeah, it's, it's a make or break decision. Or it's a make or break day for us at Fire in the Mountains. If the commissioners pass the permit, then we get to have this festival, you know, for a while. We don't have to reapply for the permit. We can have it as long as everything goes well. We can have it every year. If they don't pass the permit, Fire in the Mountains goes out of business. We don't ever have the festival here, and the community loses this amazing opportunity to have such an internationally recognized, unique DIY from the ground up festival created by a long-term community member like myself that has just really grown this festival. Not from any kind of monetary standpoint, I, I'm not wealthy, I don't bring in my own money here, right? It's This is just literally a eight-year progression of me just trying to grow it year over year. And the impact on the community, I feel like, is going to be hard hit because, you know, in these years after COVID, we need to do everything we can to heal. We need to do everything we can to really promote and embrace community-driven music and artistic diversity. And so if this doesn't pass, I think that the long-term implication is that a DIY type of event that I'm putting on like this if I can't do it, no one can do it, and it won't ever happen. We're just going to kind of be stuck with our standard kind of mountain town events like Rendezvous Fest, and not, not to put them down. I think that they're, they're really great events, 
but it doesn't touch on, you know, the diversity that I think that we need and the diversity that I think that the community should be embracing and supporting. And so I think that long-term implication is going to be hard to get over if it doesn't pass for the community. And I think that we won't see as many of them anymore. If you'd like to write an email to the Teton County Commissioners expressing your support for the passage of Fire in the Mountains Conditional Use Permit, you can email commissioners, that's C-O-M-M-I-S-S-I-O-N-E-R-S, at tetoncountywy.gov. This coverage is funded in part with an Arts for All grant provided by the Town of Jackson and Teton County. Make sure to visit 891khol.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. The Jackson Town manager released his draft budget for the next fiscal year on Monday. Although the exact items will be debated in the coming weeks, the key news is that local government is likely going to be able to spend more due to increasingly high projections for sales and lodging tax collections. However, Vice Mayor Arne Jorgensen warned local residents that inflation and increasing costs of services does mean the town still needs to think long term about where it gets its money from. Face value, it could come off as we're just looking to increase the available resources we have to invest. And I just wanted to remind folks that it's it will likely undershoot the actual cost of us providing the, the basic service we're already doing. The main priorities that the town has identified as needing investment include health and human services, housing, the environment, transportation, and other core utilities. The lone helicopter operator offering scenic tours of Jackson Hole from the Jackson Hole Airport will not seek to renew its permit with the airport when it expires at the end of this month. Airport Executive Director Jim Elwood made the announcement during an airport board meeting Wednesday, though he emphasized that Wind River Air can continue to fly from the airport as a transient operator. It just can't advertise offering scenic flights from the airport in the way it does now. Just because they're not looking for a license uh, from this airport board doesn't mean that they will cease to do scenic tours. What it means is some of the controls that are within that license agreement will no longer be in effect. For example, the company will no longer have to carry a tracking device on board during tours, making gathering precise data about the altitude and flight paths more difficult. Both airport and Grand Teton National Park officials reiterated Wednesday that they, and even the Federal Aviation Administration, have limited authority to control airspace when it comes to scenic flights. A group of advocates for clean water in Jackson Hole held a meeting Tuesday about trout-friendly lawns. Water resource specialist for the Teton County Conservation District, David Lee, says our natural local geology is the number one source of pollutants. But residential practices, like fertilizer runoff and septic systems, are in the top five. Horses and cattle, also, you know, historic impacts from them, but on a per acre basis, actually less nutrient input than some other residential practices, including septics and lawn fertilizer. Lee and other conservationists are advocating that professional and amateur landscapers maintain a couple of best practices to become trout friendly. 
Those include limiting fertilizer use and not spraying it within 20 feet of streams, only running sprinkler systems sparingly, and using thicker, native plants as buffers next to waterways. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.